Uh, we've been talking on the um, furniture of the tabernacle in the Old Testament. And the author in Hebrews chapter 8, 9, and 10, and we're sort of covering that as a group there, the author um, tells us that all the furniture, in fact, every aspect of the tabernacle in the Old Testament was a shadow of things that was to come. It, it, it was a type, a symbol, to teach us something about the reality of, of uh, who Jesus is and what our walk with him is about in the heavenly tabernacle and things of that sort. So we've been flushing that out. And I want to sort of continue that this morning. I say sort of because it's not directly on the text, but it's going to be related to the text. Um, the Bible in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 2 talks about a lampstand in the, in, the, in the tabernacle. We've talked about the Ark of the Covenant, the Mercy Seat. We've talked about the Altar of Incense. Another piece of furniture that you found in the Holy of Holies was a lampstand or the candlestick. It actually had seven candlesticks, um, and they were lit continually. They burned with oil, and it was the only light that you had in the Holy of Holies. There was no windows there. And the point most scholars agree that the author is getting at there, that God was getting at through giving them this candlestick, was this. Seven, almost always in the Bible, signifies perfection. The light, of course, is Jesus Christ. He is the perfect light. And the bottom line, it's a simple but very profound truth that we can apply in a lot of different areas. The, 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 the truth is that without Jesus Christ, we're in darkness. Amen? Without the light of Jesus Christ, you don't know what you're doing. You don't know where you're going. Now, this has been in my mind. The light of Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God who will direct our paths in the midst of a dark world if we will but let him. This has been on my mind and it's been on my heart. This week I had a person come uh, to speak to a class that I teach. His name is Richard Swenson. He wrote this book, Margin. Uh, some of you have read this book. I would recommend it. It's a very, very good book. And what happened when he came and spoke was something of a, what we call a kingdom coincidence. You know, you have those things where... Um, Things just come together in a way that you feel is divinely orchestrated. And something happened to me as he was talking. A, a light went on. I, I, it's one of these moments of clarity. Do you ever have these where it's just all of a sudden you see something you hadn't seen before? Or you saw it, but it was foggy and now it's clear? For me, they're very, very rare. But once in a while, I have a moment of clarity. Thank God for that. And I've really been de developing a fuel for this. It has to do with, with basically this. Um, our desperate, desperate, desperate need to have the Lord, the wisdom of God, directing our path. Before I go any further, I want to stop because it's a wise thing to do and pray that God will just anoint us. Amen? Amen? Pray with me here. Father, we need your wisdom hugely. We need your power big time. This church and any church and any group of people and any strategy might, what we might have, God, it all comes to nothing of kingdom value unless you are at the center of it, infusing it with your power, your presence, and directing it with your wisdom. And so, Lord, we ask that this word, which is about your wisdom, would be filled with your wisdom. I pray, Lord God, that you'd anoint it with your spirit and make it powerful. I pray, Lord God, that you would help this word, make this word. However it comes out, Lord, it's unimportant, but I pray that you'd use this word to open up our eyes to see the world in which we live and the reality of things around us that we could be the people you called us to be. I pray, Lord God, that this would confront us and get us out of any rut that we maybe are in that's holding us back from being the people you want us to be. Be present here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All God's people said... 
The bottom line truth is this. Without light, you are in total darkness. It's very important when you're in the darkness, and this world is largely enveloped in darkness, it's crucial, it's imperative, it's mandatory that you know who your light is. In other words, we need the candlestick, which is the perfect light of Jesus Christ. He said, I am the light of the world. I learned this truth actually at a very young age. Um, I was um, a rather strange child. Um, in fact, looking back on it, I was profoundly weird. Uh, one of the stranger aspects about me was this. I, most kids play superheroes. I believed I was a superhero. <laughs> More specifically, I was Superboy. Superman, actually, but still a boy, so we'll go Superboy. I was Superboy. I had a shirt that proved it. I had an S on it with, it, with the emblem. I colored it with myself with crayon. Um, and I wore it at all times, at least until my mom made me wash it. Um, I had a cape. You can't be Superboy without a cape, so I wore a cape to school. <laughs> oh, yes, 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 yes. Uh, under my clothes, I had my secret identity, you know, and I wanted to actually wear, I wanted to wear glasses like Clark Kent, but I couldn't get away with that. But I had my secret identity. And if ever the bullies were getting on us, I'd just go to my friends, and I would just sort of unveil a little, you know, I, I show them the S. Not to worry. Um, it's true. I, I, it's shocking, but it's true. I, I show them my cape, which had a safety pin holding it together, um, that I'd colored red with crayon. And I, you know, don't worry, I'm Superboy. Uh, if it gets too tough, and you know, I'm not going to come out with my secret identity unless I have to, but if the going gets tough, I can. Many damsels in distress in kindergarten were saved by Superboy. So, Oh, kindergarten girls love it. You just say, hey, you want, I'm Superboy. <laughs> yeah, right. One of the things I used to do, I, I mean, I, it puzzled me a little bit why I couldn't fly, but I figured that it was because I was still young. Surely when I get to an appropriate age, the flying powers will kick in, so I would practice occasionally. <laughs> and by golly, if I wasn't getting farther and farther, you know, I, I'd hear a siren out there. Some damsel in distress needs me. And I'd run out of the driveway, and I'd, you know, try. <laughs> and I would go farther each time. So I, I was not discouraged. I was Superboy. One of the things I would do is at nighttime when it was time to go to bed, this is where I really got my practice in. Because when it was time to go to bed, I would make a run for the, for the bedroom. I'd take off my secret identity shirt on the way there, unveil my flying cape, and I'd leap into the bed and hollering out, Superboy! And land on the bed. The bed was always there. So even when the light was off, I still jumped into the dark. Superboy! And marveled at how I'm getting farther and farther. The powers are kicking in. Just make sure no kryptonite gets in the way. One night. Time to go to bed, Greg. All right. Actually, I'd always put up a fight, but when Mom finally won... Superboy would make a run for it. So I would, went running in. You probably know where the story's going, don't you? Went running into the bedroom. The light was off, but I knew the bed was there. And so I, with my shirt off, my cape unveiled, my, my, my S showing broadly, I flew into the air. Superboy! Boom! My family's out. Oh. <laughs> Thank you. My family's out in the kitchen, and all of a sudden, my mom remembers that she moved the bed. And no one told me. And you hear this long groan.
someone hid some kryptonite in the closet. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been groaning. It totally knocked the wind out of me. I learned at an early age this important truth. Never fly into the dark <laughs> thinking that you're Superboy when you don't know where the bed is. Now, it's, it's kind of a silly illustration, but it, it, it represents, I think, a pretty profound truth. As I was listening to this Richard Swenson talk about different things, um, he's, he, he's the author of his book, Margins. He, he's a physician who uh, studies human stress. That's what this book, Margins, is about. He has another book coming out called The Overload Syndrome, and the sequel to this book is called, he's tentatively titled to it, it's going to be out next year, Treadmill to Oblivion. He's given up his medical practice because what's happened is that he's observed, he started by examining the factors which are causing stress on modern-day people. As a physician, he was very concerned with this, seeing this skyrocketing of people having breakdowns. He wanted to know why, what causes it, what can we do about it? And this has gotten him into looking at different trends. And uh, these trends he's now seeing are going forward at lightning speed in an exponential way, and it appears that, in fact, it's quite certain that there's no turning back on them. As he was talking to this class that I taught, some things came together for me. One is this. I think you can pretty accurately describe the, the course of human history as a quest for knowledge. A quest for knowledge. But knowledge without wisdom, while it may produce many good things, is also to some extent lethal. Knowledge, there's a great difference between knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge is knowing how to do something. Wisdom is knowing whether or not you should do it. Knowledge is knowing what to say. Wisdom is knowing whether or not you should say it. When, or when to say it. There's a world of difference. Knowledge is basically the, a natural God-given capacity of our brain to learn things to improve our life. Knowledge gets us more things and it gets us things faster. But wisdom, the wisdom that comes from on high, James tells us that all true wisdom comes from above. Wisdom is knowing whether or not that is a good thing. If you read Genesis chapter 2, you'll find that this actually constitutes the essence of the fall that led humanity to be in rebellion against God. There was one tree in the Garden of Eden that Adam and Eve were not supposed to eat of. It was called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. They were not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Scholars agree that that phrase, you ask, why the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? What, what's wrong with that? It represents... In its essence, the desire on the part of, 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 of people to be autonomous from God, to learn things, to know things apart from God, to define for themselves what is good apart from God, to acquire knowledge that is good apart from God. But it's called the, knowledge of the, tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because without God's wisdom, any attempt to arrive at good on our own is going to result in evil. You try to learn good on your own, and you will end up knowing firsthand, experientially evil. It's an attempt to define ourselves, to create a world autonomous from God. It was forbidden. The serpent got Eve to believe that it was something that she needed, something that, that ought to be there, that God was actually threatened by this. And under the deception of the enemy, she looked at this tree, and, she, and the Bible says she thought it was good to make her wise. It was not good to make her wise. 
It was good to give her knowledge, which would also result in evil. Wisdom would have told her not to eat what God forbids. Wisdom would have said, don't go there. Because you can go there doesn't mean that you should go there. Wisdom is obeying God even if you don't see why. But the enemy deceived Eve and Adam. And the result was they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that began a process that has largely moved forward and defines human history. Right after the fall, you find in Genesis chapter 4 and Genesis chapter 5, people beginning to use this knowledge of good and evil. They begin to make things. They begin to construct things. They begin to make a name for themselves. And things very quickly got so evil that God said, I regret making human beings. Genesis chapter 6. He had to start the human project all over again. They had used this knowledge, apart from God's wisdom, to leap into the dark, thinking that they were supermen. And the result was disastrous. God had to start all over again, put some things in place through a covenant with Noah to keep sin at bay. But it wasn't too long, we don't know how long, maybe several centuries before humanity once again started to use their knowledge for good and evil against God. If you turn to Genesis 11, if you have your Bible, if you want to turn there. Here's an equation I want you to remember. Really remember this. Knowledge plus unity minus wisdom equals disaster. When human beings unite, rally around something other than Jesus Christ. See, the church is to unite the world around Jesus Christ, and that is good, that is beautiful, that is necessary. But when human beings attempt to unite, become one, apart from God's wisdom, knowledge gets disseminated quicker, Evil gets disseminated quicker, and things be, be, become disastrous. We see it happening for the first time here in Genesis 11. Listen to this. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as they migrated from the east, they came upon the plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bootmen for mortar. Representing there, they learned a new technology. They learned how to make stronger brick, which means they can make bigger buildings. So they said this, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves. You take human knowledge, human know-how, divorce it from God's wisdom, and you get pride. Let's make a name for ourselves. Let's build a city for ourselves. We'll build it up to the heavens. Representing a very profound point. That when people are separated from God, they try to create their own heaven. They try to find their own way to God. Whenever human beings try to create a utopia, such as communism, communism tried, you've got disaster. Because you're trying to unite people on a premise other than God. You're trying to go into the dark like Superman without a candlestick. And it's disastrous. Stalin alone killed 30 million people in the name of unity. They said, let's build for ourselves a city and a tower that's top in the heavens. Lest we be scattered abroad. In other words, we need something to rally around. We'll, we'll build a city. We'll build a humongous tower. There are even some non-biblical records of this, by the way, of a humongous tower that people were built, and that people built. The Lord came down and saw the city and the tower which the mortals had built, and the Lord said, look, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is the only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. I think the Lord is speaking hyperbolically here, but he's saying, you know what, the sky's the limit here in terms of what their technology will produce. If they get united in their fallen state, they get united, they share knowledge in short order, they'll be back to where they were before the flood. 
So, as a way of buying time, because God has a goal in mind with the human project, he scattered them, gave them different language, and scattered them throughout the world. You have to compartmentalize learning and compartmentalize evil in order to keep it from spinning out of control. So the Lord scattered them. The Bible tells us this, that in the last days, Something like went on with Babel is going to happen again. Daniel chapter 12, verse 4 says this. In the last days, many will go back and forth, and knowledge will increase. In other words, this scatteredness is going to be reversed. Many will go back and forth, and whenever human beings do that, their knowledge increases. I take what I know, you combine it with what you know, we all of a sudden know more. It's more the, the whole is more than the, the, the total of the parts. In the last days, many will go back and forth, and knowledge will increase. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. In the last days, the world, population will be, the world will be populated with, quote, lovers of money. What drives this whole thing of acquiring knowledge is money. More and more, faster and faster. That means bucks. Lovers of money, proud. Look what we can do. Lacking self-control, self-restraint. Always learning, but never coming to a knowledge of the truth. Always learning, perpetually learning more and more. You have this theme. When the Lord said to Adam and Eve, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. When you eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, when you try to learn stuff, get know-how, and divorce it from divine wisdom, divine light, you're going into darkness, you're going to hit the floor eventually, you will surely die. It spoke to Adam and Eve individually, it spoke to their descendants, it speaks to all of humanity. In the end, it will go full circle. This tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which first separated us from God, is going to come back and bite us, and that was the strategy of the enemy all along. Now, the news gets better, so hang on. But right now, just feel the force of it. I believe that we are in a period of time which certainly can be described as the one depicted in Daniel chapter 12, verse 4. We are in an unprecedented age. And I know that there have always been people throughout history that have thought that. The difference is, we really are. You can prove it. Things, the world is way different now than it was a century ago, way different now than it was even 30 years ago. What's happened, and this is what uh, Richard Swenson shows in this book uh, that's coming out, Treadmill to Oblivion. And hang with me here. This is very important that we understand. There's a difference between we are living in a world that is now going forward exponentially, not linearly. Okay, now follow me. There's a big difference between a linear process and an exponential process. A linear process is like one, two, three, four, five. An exponential process is like one, two, four, eight, sixteen. The world has on the whole been going linear. You could chart its slow progress. For most of history, things have been pretty much the same. But it was a very slow progress. It was a straight line. Beginning around 1900, things began to change. Around 1960, they really began to change. And what's happened is we started doubling our progress. And you can chart, Richard Swenson has got in the back of this book margin, 30 different uh, charts. I'm dealing with a lot of different stuff from teenage pregnancy to divorce rate to uh, prison uh, population to whatever. All the charts go along for centuries on a gradual upswing. Beginning in this century, but especially the last 30 years, you see them skyrocketing. It's exponential. It's crucial to understand the power of exponential processes. Hang with this. 
Because we normally think linearly. Take a piece of paper. It is one-tenth of a millimeter thick. I didn't believe this when I heard it. I made a student uh, of mine figure it out on a calculator, and it works. Fold this over. You, you have now, what, one-fifth of a millimeter, right? Now, if I were to fold this paper, this, this little piece of paper, 40 times, how thick would that paper be? If you're thinking linear, you'd think 40 times as thick as it was, so probably about 4 millimeters or so. If you maybe have a little bit of inclination about exponential processes, you might think there's a trick involved in this, so you'd think, well, no, I bet it'll be a foot. I bet it'll be a foot long. <laughs> maybe somebody who's really up on the mathematical scale would say, you know, in our class, some even said, you know, 5 feet. And we went, oh, what are you nuts? But see, you're doubling now. You're not just adding. The answer is, it would take you to the moon. I know. I, I, I made a person figure it out, because I didn't believe it. It would take you to the moon. Because the doubling process, you know, for the first, here's the thing about exponential processes. You don't notice them at first. At first, it's like, here, look, five, five, you know, another 35, that's going to get me to the moon? I don't think so. Okay, we'll go another five, okay? The thing about it is, the last, the last fold took you halfway to the moon. You're only halfway there at fold 39. You're only a quarter of the way there at fold 38. It's the last three moves that get you there. After 30 moves, you still have only a stack like this, but it's the next 10. You start doubling it and doubling that and doubling that, and now this thing's really, really going on. But you don't even notice how grand it is to the last few folds. Here's another illustration. I got a pond in the back. We hate duckweed. Duckweed stinks. It kills everything else. Ah. So we want to get rid of the duckweed. Duckweed grows very, very fast. Let's say it doubles every day. I don't know if that's true or not, but let's just say it for the purposes of math. After 27 days, you got a pond that maybe is an eighth full of duckweed, okay? It, it, but you never noticed it because it's just little, little, you know, little increments. But it's growing, it's doubling. After 27 days, let's say it, it's an eighth full. On the 28th day, it's a quarter full. And now you think, you know, that's starting to look kind of unsightly. Uh, sometime this month, I got to get some stuff to, to curb that. But see, the next day, you... The next day, you wake up and your pond is half full. So you think, whoa, I better go down this weekend and get some stuff. Too late. The next day, the pond's covered. Everything inside the pond chokes. It dies. That's the power of exponential growth. One more illustration. Someone just gave, it, gave this to me. What if you, I, I bet every kid would fail this. If, if, if you said, hey, son, I'll tell you what, I'll give you $10 a day every day of the month if you do these billion chores. Um, or I'll tell you what, I'll give you a penny the first day, two pennies the second day, four pennies the third day, and I'll always double it. Uh, what was your choice? Most kids would, would say, I'll take the $10 a day. You know, that's 300 bucks. Woohoo! Wait, 3,000 bucks. <laughs> My math was pretty bad. 3,000 bucks? Forget this penny stuff, I'm going 3,000. What if you said, well, I'll tell you what, son, uh, how about if I give you $1,000 a day? Say, kids would really, everyone's going to say, give me the 1,000 bucks a day. As it turns out, if you take a penny, the next day you give two pennies, the next day four pennies, the next day six pennies, the next, no, eight pennies, the next day 16 pennies. By the end of the month, you have got yourself five, someone just figured it out between services, five million dollars. But most of that comes on the last two or three days. In fact, half of it comes on the last day. Here's why this is important. 
we are now in a process. We have shifted gears from a linear view of progress to an exponential view of progress. It took linear progress to get us to the point of making a computer. Now we use computers to make better computers, and those computers to make better computers. So our technology is increasing at an incredible, incredible rate. The population, it took us over, it took us all of history, up to 1900, to get a billion people. It only took us 60 years to get another billion, to double that. It only took us 30 years to double that, 4 billion. They say by the year 2005, we'll have 16 billion. Now fathom this. That means in the next 15, next six years, well, we started from 1990. So for the 16 years between 1990 and the year 2005, 2006, the world, we will produce more, 16 times as many human beings as were previously produced in all of history. The thing is this, a finite system, like a pond or like the earth, can only hold so much. Exponential factors go up, but they always hit a limit where the thing closes down. There's a, a point at which the pond gets full and everything inside of it chokes. It can't go up forever. It cannot go up forever. If you look at all the different charts that, that uh, Richard Swenson's put together, and there's others saying the same thing, they're all skyrocketing. It's like we're noticing that the pond is half full of duckweed. And the processes are irreversible. Let me, let me uh, give a couple of other examples of this. Technology. We learned more by, via technology between 1900 and 1960 than all of history up to the point of 1900. 1900 and 1960, more tech, we doubled our technology. From 1960 to 1990, we doubled it again. From 1990 to 2010, they are saying we will at least double it, maybe triple it. It's going forward. We will learn more. We'll develop more know-how in the next 20 years than all of history put together. That's the nature of the exponential change. Here's the thing. That's knowledge we're talking about. That's what human beings are finding out they're able to do. Where's the divine wisdom? Because you can do it, does that mean you should do it? We feel like supermen, and there's a lot of good things, and I'm not knocking technology. Technology brings a lot of good stuff. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil it has a lot of good with it, let's face it. But if you don't pay attention, as God's wisdom would tell you to pay attention, to the downside of things, you're jumping into the dark, you're hoping there's a bed there, but you don't know that. Where will this lead us? One of the things that David Swenson is telling us it will lead us is that it is producing incredible stress on people. Stress is our ability to acclimate to change. We, we are under stress in order to adapt to change. Now think about this. The world will change more in the next 30 years than all other history, previous history put together. That means that this generation of people have got to acclimate to more stress than all other generations combined. Think about it. The world, don't you ever feel like this? It's spinning. It's like it's out of control. How do you keep up? How do you handle this stuff? Just the proliferation of choices. Use one example. Richard Swenson talks about this in Margins. We have to make choices that people in the past have never had to make. Our computer, our brain, is a finite computer. It can only handle so much. We've got to make choices all over the place. Do you know in the, in the days of Jesus, first of all, in the days of Jesus, the life expectancy was 21 years old. Do you know that? At the beginning of this century, it was up to 48. It's now 78. And we are adding 16 weeks of life uh, every two years to the average person. That's good. Who's, who can argue against that? But you've got to ask the question, where's it going? Because you can do it, does that mean that you should do it? 
So also with all the change, we can do things faster and faster, we can get more and more, and it's growing exponentially. It offers us a lot of choices, but there's a downside to that. Namely, people are freaking out. I I heard of a story last year of a lady who had a total nervous breakdown because she couldn't decide which shoes to wear that day. Now, that was just a straw that broke the camel's back, but the reality is that we're walking around with stress that we never had before. Consider this. Do you know that there are 120 different kinds of yogurt? Do we need 120 different kinds of yogurt? 177 different kinds of salad dressing, for goodness sake. 184 kinds of cereal. (laughs) Man, that's the killer, because every kid wants their own kind of cereal. Past the age of 30, just stick with brand buds, you'll do fine. (laughs) Hallelujah. Keep life simple. (laughs) There's got to be something you can count on. Okay, let's not go there. I always say they're after I already went there, you see. 250 kinds of soap. 250 different kinds of toothpaste. 550 kinds of coffee. 1,200 different business magazines published each month. 1,500 different kinds of movies available on the satellite dish right now. I mean, think about this. My wife and I went away for a little vacation, some time together, up at a cabin. They had a satellite dish. First night we were there, I was like, whoa, a new toy, you know? There's too many choices. Some of you have satellite dishes. How does one decide? And now your level, you used to be, be okay watching a boring movie. Now you want to find the best movie, you know? And so you go through all the different ones and you try them. Fortunately, they can get four different screens on the same TV, okay? So now you have four different ones. Go back, try this one, try this one, try this one. After an hour of this, you're getting mad at one another, you're getting frustrated, and you're not doing what you're supposed to do on your vacation time, which is to be together. So finally, we got a little wisdom, and we shut the whole thing off and occupy. Never mind. But, I, you don't need a TV. I rebuke the TV. Well, you spend time together. That's what you see, but here's the thing. Back, 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 back. Woo! The choices kill you. The choices kill you. Once upon a, when TV was first introduced, when TV was first introduced, it was supposed to be, it was for the military purposes, okay? Someone said, how can you make a dollar? That's always driving things. They said, well, put this into the home. There were people around who said, well, I don't know if this is a good idea because it's going to break up family time. You know, you're going to have moral influence in the family that you didn't want. But the dollar always wins in this culture, so bam, we've got TV. And it... You have the know-how, but should you do it? And I'm not bashing TV here. There's good things about it. But there's a downside to it. I mean, for one thing, you now have a competitor with a family. You have got an entertainment that reality can't possibly compete with. It's always more interesting than reality. You also have got a reality introduced into your family that it, it shows, it puts up an expectation level of other people that no one can measure up to. For example, what women are on TV... It's always the gorgeous, the knockouts, the surrealistically wonderful ones. You know that one in every 10 billion people looks like. But most kids, the average kid now spends over four hours a day watching TV. So the average girl spends four hours a day watching the impossibly beautiful people, thinking that that's normal. Now I'm just wondering, is there a relationship, to take our little exponential charts, is there a relationship between that and the fact that we have a skyrocketing number of young women who have got eating disorders trying to have a body that they can't possibly have? You see, divine wisdom would have said, look ahead, let's, 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 let's you know, slow down on this whole thing. What are the ramifications? But when you're eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, such as our culture is doing, you plow ahead. You can do it. You want to do it. You're going to do it. You make a dollar doing it. But you don't factor in the, the, the effect that it might have. You can't factor in, apart from Jesus Christ, the effect it might have. Another wonderful one is internet. And I don't know where this is going to go. 
The internet, which was just introduced in the average marketplace, the common marketplace, a couple of years ago now has about 40% of all households online, and I'm online, and there's a lot of wonderful things, research things, incredible things through internet. But the knowledge of the tree of the good and evil also has an evil side. And I don't know that we've really thought about what the implications of that might be. For one thing, here we have the world coming together, knowledge being shared like knowledge has never been shared before. It feeds into this whole uh, exponential growth thing. You have got now a format for kids. We're seeing this all over the place. Kids have access to pornography like they've never had access before. It used to be that you had to go into a store and steal it. Now you just have to know the buttons to push and it's there. Oh yeah, they put blocks on it, but you know there isn't a block that you can put in that a kid can't find a way to break. And you can use the internet to do that. You can find out how to make a bomb by just going into the right chat room. Find out how to do whatever by going into the right chat room. And now this is out there. Any madman, any sicko can get a universal audience through the internet. When you bring humanity together, such as the internet does, you have good things that will happen of this, but you also have, as knowledge grows exponentially, the evil consequences of it grows exponentially too. And there has got to be a limit. Kids learning how to make guns. Did you, is there a relationship between all of this, all that's going on here, and the fact of all these elementary school killings that we're having this last year? Just yesterday, I read in the paper of a five-year-old who went to kindergarten with a loaded gun. Something's going on here. Divine wisdom would have warned you about it ahead of time, but we're Superman diving in the dark, wondering where the bed is. We don't know all where this is all leading us. The ability to make nuclear bombs has been out there. We've increased our, our capacity to create explosives 15 billion times in the last 500 years, or 10 billion times in the last 500 years. 9.9 .9 of that billion has been in the last 50 years. The technology is out there, and the thing about this is you can't unlearn what you've learned. You can't undiscover something. This makes the world a very fragile place. As the world becomes like one community, everything hangs upon everything else, and it's it's very worrisome that it seems probable that at some point a person who really doesn't care if they kill 30 million people could find out how to make a nuclear bomb. You can do it in your garage, you know, and the internet will help you. I, my, my daughter just had a friend this last week arrested, a, a good friend, the girl she grew up with, arrested for passing fraudulent bills. You heard about that in the news? They did it in their bedroom. They learned how to on the internet. You see, the power as it's shared, coming together to make a giant tower isn't necessarily a good thing. The Bible tells us that in the last days, as I read, many will go back and forth and, and knowledge will increase. If ever that has been true, it is true now. Do you know that every day, 10 million people travel internationally now? You talk about going back and forth. 10 million people cross international lines every day. That's 10 times what it was 8 years ago, 100 times what it was 40 years ago. In the last days, the world will be populated by lovers of money, proud, without self-control, always learning, but never coming to a knowledge of the truth. The point is this. I, I don't know exactly where we're at, but we are now noticing, you look at the charts, everything is going up like this, and in a finite system like the earth, with finite people like us, there's only so much you can take. There's an upper limit. I don't know how big the pond is, but I do know that the duckweed is, is doubling all the time. And it has some implications for us. We're Diving forward as a culture, as a people, fulfilling the Genesis 2 prophecy that in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Not knowing when we're going to hit the floor, but you will hit the floor. Now let me conclude with just a couple of points about divine wisdom. Number one is this. Divine wisdom 
God's wisdom, the light that is Jesus Christ, would have us know this. This should not come as a surprise. He knew that when we went down this path, this is where, we, where we'd end up. That's why we have the prophecies about it. Divine wisdom would have us see that this is not a downer thing, but this is a positive thing. To the non-believer, it's a downer thing. If you're grabbing onto this world as your only hope, this is a downer thing. But to the believer, this should be, even though you don't like to see the evil here, but the fact that we're approaching the end should be good news to us. Amen? It is... It is the end of the world as we know it, but it's the beginning of the world that he promised. And for the believer who doesn't hang on to this world very much to start with, who walks in the light of Jesus Christ, who said, don't grab onto this world, don't put your hope on this world, don't make this your home, you're a citizen of the kingdom of God, you're a citizen of heaven, look for the coming of that homeland, this should be good news, praise God. The Bible tells us in 1 Peter chapter 3 that we should live in such a way that we hasten the coming. We speed up the coming of the Lord. Paul tells us to pray in 1 Corinthians 16, Come quickly, Lord Jesus, because when he is enthroned, the world will finally be what the world was meant to be. There will be knowledge, but it will be fused with divine wisdom. We won't be going down the crazy roads that we're going down. Technology spinning out of control. They've now learned how to transplant monkey heads this last week. Did you hear about that? And they survived. And now they're now talking about they're growing organ farms in England where they can keep a human body alive without a head. Ha, ah, here's a wise thing to do. Let's just, outlive, we can have one head, live, outlive a couple of bodies. We have the capacity to do it. We're now cloning sheep. We can eventually clone human beings. They're saying that within two years, computers will have figured out how to do that. Knowledge, you can do it, but should you do it? What implications will that have? What will that mean? How long will God let this wreck go on? There's got to be an upper ceiling to it. To the believer, this is good news. Jesus said, when you see the horizon's a little bit red, you know that the storm is coming. Believer, the horizon's red, all right? I don't know if on the 27th or the 28th or the 29th or the 30th day of this multiplying pond, but I do know this. It's going to hit the ceiling. He's going to come back. Divine wisdom would say, let go of this world. You live in it. you got to deal with it. You do your stuff, but also know this. Your hope is not here. It's there. It's when he comes back. And he'll set up his kingdom. Amen. It's good news. It's good news. Hallelujah. He shall reign as Lord in all evil, all that sets itself up against him. Everything that tries to assail him, everything that has ever tried to suppress the truth will be gone. And then the world will be and we will be what God always intended it to be. And it will be, the Bible tells us, incomprehensibly good, incomprehensible, incomprehensibly beautiful. There'll be the good but without the evil, which is what God always intended. And he shall have a beautiful bride. Divine wisdom would tell us this. This is not the time to be sitting on our butts. This is not the time to be playing church. This is not the time to be playing occasional Christian. This is not the time to be playing a religion. This is the time for us to take seriously, make central in our life, the things that God has called us to understand why we're here, understand that we are guerrilla warriors toppling an evil empire with the kingdom of God. It's time to step up to the plate. God is calling us. You know this. This is, I believe, going to be the church's finest hour, and in fact, it already is. One of the exponential things that we see going on is this. Christianity is growing at a rate that is three times the, the population growth. And the population's going like this, but Christianity's outrunning it three to one, praise God. 
We're making ground. Glory to God. And the only place where that is not happening is here in the U.S. And the reason is because we are the main ones addicted to this progress, addicted with our minds absorbed with the time-consuming choices and technology. We are ones who are culturally conditioned to trust, to trust science rather than God. But God's calling His church. Can you hear me this morning? God's calling a church who is in the world but not of the world. A church who understands with divine wisdom what to abstain from. To make time for Jesus Christ. To make time for family. To keep the margins in our life. To not get sucked up into the rat race that we're a part of. To know where we're going. Things look out of control, but they're very much in control. Because God is on his throne, praise God. He's calling for a bride who's a warrior. And will stand up and do what needs to be accomplished. Divine wisdom finally... We'll tell you this, and I just mentioned it. We need God's light every step of the way. Raising kids is like walking in the darkness, isn't it? You don't know what the future holds. You need divine wisdom. And I would encourage you to be praying for God on how to raise your kids. How to raise your kids. God will show up. I, we've proven this over and over again. God, God will show up. And if you don't have the wisdom, he'll send a person in your life who does. We, we've wrestled with this. God sent a beautiful person in our life who was just helping us. Just get some insight into stuff. Thank you. I just love you, great. Um, be praying for your kids. Make time for your kids. Make time for your spouse. We gotta make time for one another. Whatever you gotta bracket, whatever you gotta let go of, whatever you gotta shove out, do it to make time for what's important. Our relationship with the Lord, our relationship with our spouses, our relationship with our kids, and our relationship with one another. Don't fall into the rat race. Never think you're Superman and dive into the dark when you're not sure the bed is there. We need the candlestick of the perfect light of Jesus Christ every step of the way. Amen. Amen. Praise God. Praise the Lord. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close with a brief prayer, but I want to offer this invitation. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, what I just said is very bad news for you. I understand that. But it doesn't have to be. It can be good news. And when we're done, I want to invite you to come forward here. And there'll be some people up here who would love to lead you in a simple prayer that begins your walk with the Lord so you can walk out of here seeing this as good news and not bad news. Let's pray. Father, we need your wisdom. And I pray for every person in this congregation that you would baptize us in your wisdom, your clarity, your light in our relationships, in our families, in our covenant groups, in church leadership, Lord. I pray, Lord God, that we would live as though we are in the last days because, Lord, it very much looks like we are. Uh, God, infuse us with a passion and excitement that can turn back the tide of what's going on in our, in our culture so we can join the rest of the world in seeing the revival that you planned for the last days, Lord. I want to be a part of it, Lord. Oh, Lord, we want to be a part of it, Lord. God, help us to go out of here with a deep love for our mothers and an excitement for you, Lord and to carry that with us wherever we go. In your name we pray, amen.